You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. There's a very interesting passage about um, about Simchas Beis and about a certain personality who is usually known to us better from Yom Kippur, but turns out has a definite uh, Sukkot connection and actually has a lot of connections to a lot of things that are going on in the days of Eliel Hanovi, um, Achov, the um, king of Israel, and his children and um, and uh, the ones who took over after him, after the revolution, which is the house of the king Yehu. So this is a very tumultuous time in the history of um, of B'nai Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. And uh, I thought that it would be a really good idea to go over as much as I can about this period in history before we actually get down to the um, subject of the interview, which will hopefully happen um, the day after tomorrow, Bezos Hashem. Now, so the first thing that I need to say is that part of what we're going to be talking about is the concept of Mashiach and the concept of Mashiach ben Yosef in particular. And I think that, you know, to some extent, thinking of the idea of Mashiach going back to, to that period of time is a little bit odd, at least I think it would strike many people as being odd, because we're so used to thinking of Mashiach as someone who has to um, gather in B'nai Yisrael from the four corners of the world, um, establish a nation in Eretz Yisrael, build the Bet HaMikdash and all sorts of other things, bring, cause everybody to do tshuva, bring about world peace, and um, other, you know, wonderful and, and uh, amazing facts that are going to happen. In any event, you know, what do you think of Mashiach when, when there is a Beit HaMikdash, uh, when there is a kingdom in Eretz Yisrael, or even two kingdoms, as the case is the case may be, um, you know, what do you think that Mashiach is going to do? I mean, the base of English is there, you know, the, uh, the king or the kings are there. So what precisely is the function of Mashiach under those circumstances? And we're definitely discussing the idea of Mashiach, which also fits into this personality that I'm hinting to, but not uh, revealing the identity thereof, because I want to leave you hanging in suspense. Well, the first thing that I need to say, which is, I, I think, you know, quite well known anyway, but it, it always bears repeating, <clears throat> is that after the uh, the kingdom of Shlomo Melech, the previously united kingdom of B'nai Israel, the 12 tribes, was split asunder by a event whereby the 10 northern tribes basically ceded from the Union. And this was done by Hashem's will through a Navi Achia Hashiloni. And it was originally, you know, part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's plan. But the person who was chosen to lead the, the new kingdom 
somebody called Yeravam ben Nevat, who had a long history with, in the, during the time of Shlomo HaMelech as well. And um, he was a descendant of Shevet Ephraim, by the way. And things started out, you know, basically okay. This was this tearing away of the kingdom from from Malchut Beis David was a result of the things that Shlomo had done during his lifetime, and it was a decree of Hakadosh Baruch Hu that such should that such should take place, except to leave some Malchut Beis David because there was a promise. Hashem made a promise to that there would always be a king from the line of David on the throne. So, the great mistake of Yeravam ben Nevat was that he said, wait a second, if I let my citizens, my people, go to Yerushalayim to worship three times a year in the Beit HaMikdash that was built by Shlomo HaMelech, eventually I will lose control of my kingdom, I'll lose control of my people. And therefore he came up with the insidious idea of erecting alternatives to the Bet Hamikdash, one was in, one was erected in Betel, and the other one was in Dan. And the centerpiece of these centers of worship w- were, or was, in each one, a calf, an egel, or the statue of a statue of a calf. And as a matter of fact, when Yeruvam unveiled this um, this um, statue to the people, he actually called out the same phrase that had been used previously at the Egel. He said, you know, um, Elo, Elo, Elohecha Yisrael, Asher HaLucha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. This is your God, O Israel, that took you out of the land of Egypt. So, it's very interesting that one would go back 500 years to to a major sin of our ancestors to, to then use that as the basis for uh, a new kind of worship. You know, so it, it's obviously not off, things are off to a bad start. However, it bears mentioning that, that Yeravan ben Nevat's plan was to declare religious independence from Yerushalayim, not necessarily to get everybody to worship Abu Dazara. Um, there's a rather famous Abar Vanel that, uh, that says that you know, if you take a look at the symbolism of a of the calf, or let's say it's the son of the it's the son of uh, the bull, you know, so bull or the shor is a major symbol of Shevet Yosef, and Moshe Rabbeinu uses this symbol in his brachot. You know, bechor shoro hadar lo, the firstborn um, ox or or um, Or bull has its glory, and this is a symbol of the tribe of Yosef. And um, the northern kingdom is the kingdom of Malchut Yosef. the The dynasty of uh, Yeruvan ben Nevat goes on for about fifty years uh, before it becomes replaced after a tumultuous, tumultuous few years, with the dynasty of Omri. And Omri's son was Ahav, and Ahav was a very paradoxical figure for anybody that knows anything about this, because on the one hand, he's probably the most reviled king that we 
have mention of in, in uh, Sefer Malachim, besides Menashe, perhaps. But um, at the same time, in many ways, he's also a very good king. I mean, we spoke about this in one of our previous lectures. He he did a lot in order to to maintain the country. He tried to make his kingdom into a great kingdom. And um, he tried, I think, in, in, as far as the as far as the social and, and political aspects of the kingdom to really try to do it right. Right. Um, so he he is one of several um, kings mentioned in the Tanakh that also occur in the archaeological um, record. And um, the way that that is, is that, is that in a way which is not actually even mentioned in the Tanakh, it seems that um, um, Ahav participated in a joint military uh, venture to block the expansion of the Assyrians into that part of the Middle East, and it was successful. Not the not that they managed to conquer the Assyrians, but um, in the sense that the Assyrians lost interest in trying to reach in, down into that area and take and take things over. And that didn't last very long. The Assyrians actually did make ma- major uh, major encroachments at uh, at various different times, but that, of course, is a different. Uh, that's a different story. The major thing that that um, Ahav is remembered for is that he married a um, Sidonian woman, a woman from Sidon, as they would say in English. It's a it's a city up the coast of Lebanon, um, and um, he married a princess of that of that city. Obviously, for political reasons, because I mean, that, that's how political alliances were were sealed back then. And um, she introduced the worship of the Canaanite deity Baal in a very big way, and supported the large priesthood of Baal, and um, did her best to persecute the Nevi'im of Hashem. There was one Navi, which we all are familiar with. His name is Eliyahu, and he was single-handedly involved in a struggle against both Ahav and his wife and the priesthood of Baal and the whole thing. So we don't usually think of our Navim as revolutionaries, but in the case of Eliyahu, that would be that would be accurate because he actually does bring about a revolution. Um, it starts with the contest contest between him and the Nevi'e Habal um, on Hara Carmel, where Hakadosh Baruch Hu, um, demonstrates to everybody there that uh, that the theory Baal does not exist and and, and can't does, can't do anything, and that uh, the people all cried out, Hashem Hu Ha'Elokim, Hashem Hu Ha'Elokim. And there was a gigantic massacre of all of the priesthood of Baal. So Eliyahu was overjoyed, apparently, and he was overjoyed enough that he actually honored um, Ahav by running in front of his chariot for, well, many miles anyway, till, until uh, they got back to Ahav's palace. And presumably he was 
really hoping that there would be a revolution, you know, that at least the people would rise up and and uh, get rid of Izevel, or Ahav would get rid of Izevel, you know, his uh, wife that uh, brought all the Baal worship into Eretz Yisrael. And nothing like that happens. As a matter of fact, Izevel feels secure enough in her position that she threatens Eliyahu and says, listen, you know, tomorrow you will be just as dead as the priests over there that that uh, your people killed. And I guess that the penny drops with Eliyahu and he realizes that there is going to be no revolution. There's no, nothing, nothing like that is going to happen. And feeling extremely frustrated and if his life is a meaningless sham, he runs away, heads down south, he is led by by Ruach Nevoah, by Kadosh Baruch Hu, um, down into the deep desert, and he runs with practically no food or water um, all the way down to Har Sinai, where he puts him. He goes up to the mountain. He goes into a cave. You know this would appear to be the same cave that Moshe Rabbeinu was in when, when Moshe got his revelation of Yud Gimel Midot. And it's interesting that, you know, when Moshe was there, Moshe was there to, to plead HaKadosh Baruch Hu's pa- compassion for Am Yisrael. Um, Eliyahu's purpose was much different. Eliyahu is there to ask God to take his life. And he says many times, Kanok Hineti, you know, I was, I was very zealous. I was, um, I was willing to do incredible things for you. I was willing to tear down all the falsehood and establish all the truth and do it right now, no matter how much blood it takes to spill. And, and now they're trying to kill me. So fine. It's so I don't, I want out and I'm willing to, you know, willing not, I'm willing to check out. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells him, okay, um, so do three things. And he said, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends him back to, to Israel to do three things. One is to appoint a Navi as his replacement. That turns out to be Navi Elisha. He tells him to go appoint a new enemy to plague Am Yisrael. Then it would be Chazael, the king of Aram. And lastly, he tells him to go anoint somebody by the name of Yehu ben Nimshi to be new king. Now, Eliyahu does not accomplish all of these things. He accomplishes one. He appoints Elisha to be his um, to be his replacement. Elisha does the other two. Appoints a new king over the, um, or orchestrates a coup up there in Damascus, in Damascus, so that a new king takes over instead of the old one. Uh, who, and and he sends a one of the B'nai Nevi'im, which is kind of like a an apprentice Navi, to anoint Yehu ben Nimshi. We are not told who the name, you know, who this apprentice Navi is, but uh, Chazal have their tradition about who it was, and we'll get to that at a different time. Yehu ben Nimshi brings about the revolution that I suppose, you know, based upon based upon what the Tanakh says, uh, brings about the revolution that Eliyahu hoped for. Um, 
he he kills the existing king of Israel, which was which was um, Ahab's grandson. He also kills the king of Yehuda, who was down there visiting Ahab, or who was up there actually, because he was going coming from the south to the north. He was up there visiting um, the king of Israel, who had been uh, who had been injured and was recuperating. So the two of them, the two of them were together. The two of them were actually related, because it happens to be that Ahab married off his sister, or maybe his daughter to Yehoram, who was the son of Yehoshaphat, the king of Yehuda. So during during Ahab's reign, you actually do have a certain amount of connectivity and a, and a certain amount of cooperation between Malchut Yehuda and Malchut Yisrael, which is which is very interesting. Another another interesting thing is, is that all of all of Ahab's children have have names that have you know Yud you know Yud K or Yud K Vav in them, you know names like Achaziah, uh, Atalia, and Yehoram. Um, okay, so so it seems that uh, Ahav at least has some connection to to you know belief in in uh, in Hashem. So. Yehu is so effective at eliminating all of Izevel's influence and the entire house of Ahav that he not only kills the Melech Israel, he kills Melech Yehuda. And this starts a very interesting story, let's just say, on both, on both sides of the, of the border. Okay. And so I'm, just kind of, kind of briefly touch about what what goes on here at this point in in Malchut Yehuda. Atalia notices, of course, she knows that her son, the king, has been killed, and she also knows that um, in a situation like this, she's going to be out of a job, and probably dead, um, in not very long time. So she acts like a true. You know, um, like a true Phoenician princess, I said, and and starts killing people. She kills all of the family. She kills all the children of the royal house. So basically, there's nobody to replace her. Just so happens to be that there is a woman who is the wife of somebody called Yehoiada Hakohen. So he's the wife of the Kohen Gadol, who has finds. You know, one last one last baby in the family, whom she steals away and raises in the uh, in the Beit Hamikdash, or even in the Kodesh Hakodeshim. It seems um, she raises him in a place called the Chamber of the Beds, um, which is kind of odd because, at least as far as the Mishnah is concerned, in Masechet. There are no beds for Kohanim to sleep in in the Beit Hamidash. They, they have to sleep on their floor with with maybe a, a cloak or something to you know to cushion them. Um, so Chazal understand that Cheder Hamitot, the, the the bedroom, is actually a euphemism for Kodesh Kodashim. So here you have this this um, little child who is known whose name is. 
So after being hidden in the Beit HaMikdash, or even in the Kodash HaKodashim, for six years, Yehoyada HaKohen realizes that the time is right, and he brings the young prince out of hiding, has him crowned king, and then there is an uprising, and Atalia is killed. So that is the end of the family of Ahav and their connection to Yerushalayim. Um, King Yoash, who took over, uh, was generally thought to be one of the good kings. We read about him um, in the story when they refurbished the Beit HaMikdash. It's the, it's the uh, Haftarah to, to Parshat Shkalim, because he's the one who began collecting Shkalim, collecting coins in order to... Uh, or collecting silver in any way, in order to in order to refurbish the Beit Hamikdash, which had become quite run down in the years in the years since. Um, unfortunately, um, the story does not have a happy ending um, because in his older years, after Yehoiada Hakohen uh, dies, then um, King Yoash goes, shall we say, off the derech. And in a confrontation with a certain Navi called Zechariah, had uh, Zechariah murdered, and uh, the bubbling blood of Zechariah, as far as, as Chazal tell the tale, was still there when Vuchadnezar destroyed the Beit Hamikdash, and um, so that was major a major blot on the on the history of um, of the. First Beit Hamikdash was the fact that somebody actually killed somebody who was both a priest and a prophet in the Beit Hamikdash. It's mentioned in Megillat in Megillat Echa as well. But anyway, returning to the to the situation in the north, um, Yehu does a fantastic job of eliminating the entire house of Ahav and eliminating all of the. Worshippers of Baal, the priests of Baal, he actually has a great Baal worshipping convention for everybody. And then when everybody's in who is attending, they shut the doors and kill everybody. Um, so the the uh, Pasuk actually does you know testify how shall I say? Vayashmed Yehu et Habaal Misrael you know, Yehu absolutely eliminated Baal worship from Israel. The only thing wrong with him was that he didn't go back on the sins of Yeruvam ben Nevat, Asher Hechtiet Yisrael, um, the Eglei Hazahav, Asher Betel, Asher Bedan. They did not. He did not take down the uh, the um, the calves that were in Betel and in Dan, um, which. Does kind of show you really what the what the major major problem was the the source of all of the problems of of, uh, of the northern kingdom as, as far as the as far as the uh, navi here in Sefer Malachim tells it is that because of the presence of these two other worship sites, um, which once again presumably were not meant uh, to be worship. You know, not, not meant to be idolatrous in of themselves, but then neither was the original Egel Hazav meant to be idolatrous. Um, but it certainly easily slid towards towards that kind of thing.
if you if you take a look at most of the nevuah, which is actually directed towards the northern kingdom, and and typically there's there's two uh, two books which are which fall very prominently into that category. Um, one of them is is Hosea, and the other is Amos. Um, so in Hosea, I believe there are a few references to to worshiping Baal, which would indicate that okay on a popular level with you know with ordinary people there was probably you know still some baal worshiping going on and when the when the navi says over here that um that uh, yehu completely eliminated it um that that uh, that was shall we say political baal worship you know baal worship is countenanced by the by the government or the or the king um you know individual people might be doing might be doing their own thing still and that's um certainly not acceptable but it's not as bad as what was going on during during um Ahab's time where baal worship was institutionalized and in fact the vie hashem were being were being persecuted and and uh and killed now the House of Yehu, um, well, the House of Omri ruled for about another fifty years, and um, the the dynasty of Yehu went on for about another hundred. Okay, so it was a it was a fairly long lasting dynasty, but it had tremendous tremendous ups and downs. Okay, um, Yehu was far from being a a sterling character. And he was, in many ways, a, a disappointment. Perhaps in the primary way in which he was expected not to be a disappointment, he did not heal the rift between Malchut Yisrael and and uh, and Malchut Yehuda in terms of how to properly worship Hashem. Okay, he 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 didn't he didn't do that. As a matter of fact, the only the only one of the entire ten tribes that ever did anything remotely in that direction. Is a is the last king before the um, before the Assyrians came in and, and wiped everybody out, or took everybody out took, took everybody out into into Galut, um, and um, his name was Hoshea ben Elah, and it says about him. Let's see if I can find the. Yeah, so here's what the Pasuk says about Hoshea ben Elam. And he ruled for te- for nine years. Vayaas harab Hashem, Yisrael So he was bad, but he wasn't as bad as the other ones. So I suppose, I don't, I really didn't look this up, but it, it seems to me that, um, the tradition that Chazal have about about Hoshea ben Elah was that he he stopped the border patrol between between Mamlechet Israel and Mamlechet Yehuda, so that people who wanted to go to the Beit Hamikdash in Yehuda were able to do so without without interference. So, well, that's a step in the right direction. So, I guess he wasn't as bad as all of the other all of the other kings who actually ensured that their people did not go up to Yerushalayim. Um, but still, you know, it's too little, too little, too late. Uh, I should also I should also point out that that um, you know 
even if you know, even if the pasuk says by by uh, Yehu ben Nimshi that he succeeded in completely eliminating uh, the worship of Baal from Am Yisrael, but there was a, there was obviously avodazara going on in, in the in the in the northern in the northern kingdom, and um, among along with a long other litany of of um, of averot and, and problems. Um, but like I said, if you if if one if one reads through uh, Navi Hoshea and Navi Amos, you definitely get the impression that a lot of the issues are social. I was like, particularly in Amos, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that there's rich people who abuse poor people. There's people taking advantage of each other. There's, um, you know, uh, there's the courts are in the courts are unjust. Um, and people don't care about each other anymore, and and, uh, and you have uh, you know rich people laying about on 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 beds, plucking at harps and imagining themselves to be like David Amelech, all sorts of all sorts of things. So he's very much against the luxury and the and the, um, the wealth and the injustice that was endemic to society of that of was endemic to the, that society at the time. Now, um, Amos, of course, was. Was um, Amos was uh, active primarily in the reign of um, of Yeruvam ben Yoash, who was the last major king of the Omri dynasty, and. Uh, Probably the greatest king that the northern tribes um, ever had. He was amazingly influential, and he got together a, you know, he reconquered all of the territories that used to belong to Israel. He added, he 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 added to the territory of of uh, of the nation, and the explanation, even though he was really not at all um, what you would call a good king from the religious point of view. Um, so the the Navi has to explain how he could have been so incredibly successful. He also had a very long reign of um, um, namely slightly slightly over forty years, which is a very long time. And uh, certainly in the ancient world it was a very long time. And um, the explanation as to why a bad person would have been so successful is like this, that um, it was because Hashem saw how poverty-stricken Israel was, that their situation was miserable, that there's, there was no one to protect them and no one to help them. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu was not ready, Hashem was not ready at that point to wipe out the name of Israel from under the heavens. And so he saved them by the hand of Yeruvam ben Yoash. So it means to say that there are times when Hashem is going to save B'nai Israel, not because they deserve it, but because, as it says in Shirat Hazinu, lest the enemies get too full of themselves. And begin to think that um, you know they 
um, that they're really in control of things, that, that Hashem has actually abandoned his people, and that's why they can do all of this, or maybe from their point of view that the gods that they worship are greater or more powerful than the than the god that uh, Am Yisrael worships. And for all of those reasons, HaKadosh Baruch Hu may do for, his, for, the, for the sake of his name, and um, and um, simply because of his own reputation, and give Israel the kinds of victories and the kind of prosperity which uh, which gives some element of honor and glory to himself. But of course, that is not going to last. And um, after a period of um, Prosperity and security and military military victories. Um, the dynasty of Yehu comes to an end, and then you have a lot of political um, political turmoil, a lot of changes of the you know cha- dynastic changes, and uh, and then come the Assyrians, and they basically end the entire uh, show. So that pretty much um, is my thumbnail sketch of the of the history of of uh, the Aseret Hashvatim of of Malchut Israel. Okay. And once again, I think that something that's very very significant to to look at is is the idea of of um, Eliyahu's Kanaot. As when we say that Eliyahu was a Kanai. Okay, we're actually saying in so many words that he was willing to spill a lot of blood in order to bring about a, in order to free B'nai Israel from, from Abu Dazarah. He was willing to, to overthrow kings and he was willing to do what it takes, uh, without reserve in order to bring about, um, a change of dynasty and hopefully a change of heart by, by, uh, B'nai Israel. And the sad thing is, is that it didn't work. Right. And um, uh, so, so the question is, what are to, what are to what are we to make of Eliyahu's um, lack of success, and the way that the way that things turned out? I mean, you know, he brought about a revolution and brought um, you know brought Yehu to power, but that didn't seem to really change anything ultimately. Um, so, if you Familiar with uh, with uh, Chazal on this, it, you know when Eliyahu runs to Har Sinai and and he calls out to Hakadosh Baruch Hu in his misery, and he says, "Kanokineti laHashem ki azvu b'ritcha b'neti Yisrael." I've I've been very zealous for for Hashem, and because uh, B'nai Yisrael have have abandoned your covenant, vayavakshu et nafshi lekachta, and they also wanted to take my soul. So, the according to Chazal, the response of Hakadosh Baruch Hu is something of a chastisement to Eliyahu. It says, you know, don't make you know, don't make claims uh, about my children. You know, don't say bad things about them. I will prove to you that they continue to keep the covenant, and every Brit Milah that they that uh, any Jewish person ever does for his son. You're going to be there, and you're going to witness that Bnei Yisrael do have a, um, a deep-seated connection to me, and that your, therefore, your zealousness and your disappointment over the lack of short-term success, which is really what this is about, um, is not appropriate. 
Okay, so the idea apparently of Eliyahu is that is that he thinks that it's that the there's going to come a revolution in well one fell swoop and it's all going to be over and it's all going to be different. It's all going to happen soon, if not now. And in fact, um, the way that Hakadosh Baruch Hu actually plans to do things is over the long, long, long historical journey, which um, we're still you know we're still involved in. So things take time. I guess that would be the that would be Hashem's message to Eliyahu. But anytime a Jewish family does a Brit Milah for their child, just know that is, you know, that is the the symbol and the sign that what is fundamentally critical to the ultimate goal is in place, and you have to acknowledge, you have to acknowledge it. And that's the message to that's the message to Eliyahu. So. Um, as I said before, one of the things that you're going to discover, or that we are going to discover in this, in this, um, in this interview that we're going to have is that there is a strong element of Mashiach lurking about here. Uh, particularly Mashiach ben Yosef, who, like I said, I'm not going to tell you who he is, because that's the, that's the surprise. Okay. Um, but, um, there is a messianic aspect. That there's a, a messianic aspect to this story, and I, as I said before, I'm not going to tell you who it is because that would kind of spoil the surprise. But at first glance, you're probably thinking that Yehu would be the Mashiach person. After all, he's actually anointed. Okay, he's actually anointed king of Israel, and he's going to certainly turn things upside down. But it turns out that no. No, Yehu is not the Mashiach personality um, that we're looking for. Another Mashiach personality that we could consider would be um, would be the would be the young King Yoash who um, reigned after they eliminated Atalia and uh, and brought him out of hiding from the Beit Hamikdash. And, you know, he would be a, a kind of a good mess, a good candidate for, for being Mashiach because once again he overthrows, uh, although not, he not personally, the, the people behind him, um, they overthrow a, you know, very wicked ruler and they place him as a righteous and, and upright king who, who doesn't build the Beit HaMikdash, but he certainly refurbishes the Beit HaMikdash. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you something interesting, you know, there's actually a Mizmor Tehillim. That talks about him. Uh, so says Rashi in the name of in the name of Seder Olam. It is Mizmor Kavzayin, none other than Le David Hashem Orivishi, which we say for a long time between Rosh Chodesh uh, Elul and um, and uh, Simchat Torah. Okay, and this is taken to be a reference. To, to Yoash. Now, the way that it's presented, you could have the Mizmor being written by David Amelech, looking into the future through prophecy and, and, and seeing the story of Yoash, uh, or it could be written by somebody in Yoash's court who is trying to make the connection between David Amelech and Yoash, as if Yoash is a new David Amelech. Um, and the comparison, the comparison is warranted because both of them spent a lot of time hiding from 
from rulers who wanted who wanted to kill them unjustly. So the you know the parallel is there, and also the the well known idea of of David Amelech as being very much in love with Hakadosh Baruch Hu's house. You know, building a building a house for Hashem, wanting to spend time in the house of Hashem, and um, and here you have a person who actually who actually grew up in the most intimate part of of uh, the house of Hashem. So there's all sorts of uh, you know little hints like you know Aviv imi azavuni v'Hashem yasveni. You know. Um, that doesn't seem to be um, entirely the case with David, but it's certainly the case with Yoash because you know he was an orphan. He was an orphan being spirited away to some you know mysterious place, and 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 so his parents were unable to uh, unable to help him in any way. Um, and orphans generally do feel terribly embarrassed, Im- you know, abandoned by their parents, even though their parents haven't, you know, Hashem should help, you know should never know from such things um, didn't have a lot of choice in, in whether they wanted to go or not but that doesn't stop the orphan from feeling abandoned so Aviv imi azavuni Hashem yasfeni Hashem has gathered me and after being abandoned by my by my parents um, so there you have um, interesting tidbit about about Yoash and about that Mizmor Tehillim that we, that we say so often But one person that actually is referred to by Chazal as being a Mashiach character um, is is Chizkiyahu Melech. So Chizkiyahu Melech, Chizkiyahu begins his reign pretty much at the same time that the Assyrians are attacking the northern kingdom and eliminating it, and. Um, exiling its inhabitants. So he himself is going to have to confront the Assyrian threat um, at some point, um, which he does. And uh, the, sto- the story of, uh, of Chizkiah and the miraculous events involved with that is, are, are also well known. Um, so what Chazal say about him is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted Chizkiah to be Mashiach and that uh, Sancher of the king of Ashur um, would be Gogu Magog. And the only reason why it didn't happen was because Chizkiah did not say Shira, he didn't say songs of thanksgiving um, over the over the victory against uh, Sancheriv. So at least you know that it is possible for somebody in the time when the Beit HaMikdash is standing, and who is even a king, to become Mashiach in some way, as if he isn't already uh, something to that effect. So it kind of leaves us with a slight question as to what would we expect, if we were living in the times of the, of the first Beit HaMikdash, what would, be, what, would be ex- what would we expect of a Mashiach-type character? And I don't mean to be overly subtle about this, um, but there are several things that that come to mind. Um, well, firstly, you want the king to eliminate Abu Dazara, you know, get everybody to do tshuva, eliminate Abu Dazara, eliminate the worship, even if it's worship of Hashem, on uh, private altars all over the country. Um, you would want uh, Mashiach to institute uh, all kinds of social justice and all kinds of. Um, 
you know, to have a, to create a country where people care for each other. You would want Mashiach to be victorious on the battlefield to defend the nation against invaders and everybody else that would want to take it over. And particularly in a period of history where you have the dominance of a superpower and the superpower's attempt to exert its control and establish an empire that includes all sorts of vassal nations. And vassal nations here have to serve the empire and they have to pay taxes, which is an, obviously an onerous burden. The job of Mashiach would be to drive out the empire from the land of Israel and to establish um, Eretz Israel as being a truly independent nation. And Incidentally, along with that, uh, I think that a an expectation for Mashiach uh, would be to actually develop an empire of our own, to have some vassal states to, to serve us. Right? And um, the place to look for that, if you want to see that quite explicitly, is in the second psalm in Sefer Tehillim, where it describes a rebellion of nations against Mashiach, where, or against Hashem and his anointed king, where they say, let's toss off his ropes and throw down, you know, throw off our, our, um, throw off his, his cords that bind us, and, um, how this is going to end very badly for them because HaKadosh Baruch Hu has his own plans and he actually wants the, the, uh, empire of Israel to, to be established. So, and we did actually have something of an empire, um, during certain periods of history, like, during, you know, the time of David and Shlomo, where there were vassal nations like Moab and Edom that were, that were under our control. Um, later on, they actually managed to throw off, um, the yoke of, of uh, Yehuda and Israel from them. So, these are the things, oh, and, of course, the most important thing of all within the context of a dual monarchy is for Mashiach to be the one that brings about the unification of the two kingdoms and establishes the Beit HaMikdash as being the center of worship for all of Am Israel. So those would be the things that would be expected of a Mashiach back then. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.